are willing to do all sorts of wacky and potentially dangerous things in the name of health. Drink bleach, soak in ice water, take horse warmer. Everyone wants to be healthy, right? This desire has always been a source of income for the predatory and unscrupulous. Quackery is nothing new, but some health influencers have taken their greed to dangerous extremes. Come back with me to 1911 and a health sanatorium that earned the nickname Starvation Heights. Welcome to Scalawags, the bi-weekly podcast where we talk about how crime has shaped history and how history shapes crimes. I'm your host, Marguerite, here to tell you a story about mendacious pettifoggers, pusillanimous scofflaws, and knavish skullduggery. In other words, historical crimes. Here in the U.S., we're still eating our leftovers from Thanksgiving, where we remember a made-up feel-good story while stuffing our faces and watching the Dallas Cowboys play football. And what goes with Thanksgiving but medical quackery where people are starved to death. So, content warning if you are sensitive to discussions of disordered eating. My sources include a 2016 article by Thomas C. Weiss for DisabledWorld.com about starvation. An article from Smithsonian Magazine 2014 by Bess Lovejoy. The Doctor Who Starved Her Patients to Death, Murderpedia, of course, a History Link article by Catherine Beck from 2006, the book Starvation Heights by Greg Olson, ForgottenMinnesota.com, the Starvation Doctor Quack Healer Serial Killer from 2018. And coverage of the trial in the aftermath from various newspapers, the Oakland Tribune, the Oregon Daily Journal, the New Zealand Herald, the Seattle Daily Times, and the Wellington Daily News. That's from Kansas. And you will need a newspaper.com subscription to look at most of those archives. In addition, I reviewed the appellate records for State v. Hazard. And Marie Curie Facts from NobelPrize.org. This week we are talking about Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard. She used the title doctor, although she had no medical degree. She did attend some osteopathy college. Osteopathy is a branch of medical practice that emphasizes the treatment of medical disorders through the manipulation and massage of bones, joints, and muscles. Modern osteopaths actually attend medical school. They get a DO, Doctor of Osteopathy, but the practice originated during the Civil War and was originally kept completely separate for more conventional medicine, which was called heroic medicine at the time. Heroic and osteopathic were hostile disciplines, and many practitioners forbid their patients to receive treatment from the other side. At the time Linda Burfield attended this osteopath college, her teachers proclaimed that all diseases and illnesses were rooted in problems of the musculoskeletal system and that osteopathic manipulations could solve all these problems by harnessing the body's own self-repairing potential. She studied under a man named Edward Hooker Dewey, who was an MD with a degree obtained in 1864. He attributed all disease and physiological problems to excessive eating. He advocated long fasts and believed that abstinence from food could cure all mental illness. Dewey tied his medical beliefs to his religious ideals. Fasting was godly and overeating a sin. Let's talk about the difference in fasting and starvation. Fasting refers to deliberately not eating and sometimes drinking. There can be many reasons for this. For example, if you are having a medical procedure, you may need to fast. 
Certain meds need to be taken on an empty stomach, and intermittent fasting can be beneficial for some people. Also, people fast for religious reasons, usually an act of devotion or remembrance. Hunger strikes have also been done as a means of protest. You can survive up to 70 days without food. Well, some people can, others cannot. And the reason is a series of defenses designed to keep us alive in times of famine or to enable the body to seek out more nutrition. So what is starvation? Starvation is a severe deficiency in the caloric intake needed to maintain human life. It's malnutrition. Prolonged starvation can cause permanent organ failure and death. The basic cause is an imbalance between energy intake and expenditure. Even at rest, our organs require energy to function. After too long without energy, after the body has cannibalized everything there is to take to create that energy, organs cease to function. Starvation is not a moment, but a process. We aren't cars. We don't just stop when the tank is dry. There are metabolic defenses to starvation. Your body tries to buy you time to go put something in the tank. So here's what happens when we fast. There are three phases. The first happens quickly, even with brief fasting. Our body maintains blood glucose levels by breaking down proteins. The first protein used is glycogen. We store enough for a few hours at a time in our liver. If we don't get more, our bodies can make energy by breaking down fats and proteins as we decrease the use of glucose by anything other than our brain. After approximately a week of fasting, a person's brain starts to use ketone bodies as well as glucose for the sources of energy. The second phase can also happen quickly but can last for weeks on end. Fats are, fats are a main source of our energy. The liver, again, super useful. I just don't feel like the liver gets enough love. But the liver metabolizes fatty acids into ketone bodies that can be used for energy. This is what so-called keto diets do by restricting carbohydrates. They're forcing the body to burn fat. It takes about a week to put the body into this keto burning phase. The third phase takes some time to reach, and this is when the body is actually entering starvation mode. This only happens to extended fasting, and it happens when a person has burned off all their fat reserves. The body then has to find a new source of energy. This is when the body turns to protein. The body starts with proteins not needed for survival, but once those are gone, it needs a new source. And what is the largest source of protein in the body? Your muscles. The body consumes muscles first, and those can actually go pretty quickly. Then the body starts using proteins which are needed for survival. This is a desperate Hail Mary move. Proteins needed for cellular function are consumed and cell function breaks down. Symptoms of starvation include apathy, withdrawal, listlessness, depression, increased susceptibility to disease, flaky skin, changes in hair color, massive edema, and swelling of the lower limbs and abdomen, and dehydration. This is starvation. People do not die directly of starvation. Usually, they die of disease first. The body loses its ability to fight off even the most mundane of infections. But if that doesn't get them, they will die of organ failure. Kidneys, heart, liver, any of those can fail due to the lack of energy required to keep them operating. The most common is the heart. This process can take anywhere from three weeks to 70 days, depending on fat reserves, metabolism, and activity levels. During the early 20th century, fasting to detoxify the body became a real fad. After germs and bacterial theory were understood, there was a real push to cleansing and cleanliness, including hydrotherapy and bathing for health, in the idea, which was really just a marketing myth for those selling, and I quote, wellness, that the body collected toxins, which needed to be cleaned from the body by special diets or fasting and enemas by purging, which is vomiting to you and me, 
and special medications. These toxins were usually unspecified, but proponents suggested they caused everything from cancer to mental illness to syphilis to tuberculosis and that they can help you detox your body for a fee. This is still a thing. Scam artists often prey on a mistrust of the medical community. The idea of Big Pharma is nothing new. It's been a rallying cry for quackery for more than a century. Thing is, your body actually does detox itself. That's what your liver and your kidneys are for. The liver filters your blood and the kidneys filter toxins out of urine. The colon also has bacteria that eats toxins and it helps you excrete the waste. If your body is not properly excreting these waste byproducts, you need the help of a doctor, not a juice cleanse. Let's examine some of the early pioneers. Harewood Carrington, born 1880. This man wrote over 100 books on the paranormal, psychic research, and alternative medicine. He believed it was healthiest to only eat fruits and nuts, and only twice a day. He objected to cereals, grains, dairy, meat, and salt. Also, he didn't believe in germs. Yes, there was a whole group of germ theory denialists, and he was one. He was also big into natural hygiene. Natural hygiene was a movement that focused on vegetarianism, bathing, exercise, and massage. That all sounds reasonable. Those are all healthy things in moderation. But natural hygiene had many rules, and it took these good things to extremes. Certain foods were not considered compatible, so they needed to be eaten at separate meals. They also rejected all medical intervention, and some did not believe that food was even necessary for energy. And they were big into hydrotherapy or water cures are also part of the program, and the bathing could last for hours or days. Then came a man named Sylvester Graham, He was also a believer in vegetarianism, and he was a big part of the temperance movement. His heyday is 1829 to 1851, and he was a strict believer in no alcohol. Now, Graham, his movement really got traction during a cholera pandemic because the cholera was, was usually being spread through contaminated food or poor sanitation. And this was an age when people were beginning to eat packaged foods. And who worked in the factories that packaged food? Well, not people living in places with good sanitation. So these ill workers would come in. They were infecting the food supply. Now, Graham's people were safe because they were not allowed any processed foods on his diet. Also, no salt, pepper, Flavor was bad. Hard grains were bad. There were no stimulants of any kind and absolutely no masturbation, which he believed would cause blindness and death. Yes, the origination of you'll go blind comes from this man. It was called Gramism, and his program included cold baths, hard mattresses, and open windows. But even with a careful diet and exercise, you can get sick. And he became ill and died after receiving opium enemas at the age of 57. He is best known as the father of the graham cracker. Now, his crackers had none of the sweet flavor we know today. And they were designed to be as bland as possible in order to keep you from getting excited by your food and masturbating. At the same time, there was Isaac Jennings. He was an American physician who pioneered at the same time was Isaac Jennings, an American physician who pioneered orthopathy or natural hygiene. And as I said, the natural hygienist opposed medications, including immunization, all medical treatments, and they endorsed fasting, food combining, and raw food or vegetarian diets. He proposed bathing, rest, and the vegetarian diet, which are not bad things, 
but he considered things like tea and coffee to be a sin, as were spices. Like a lot of quacks, he would take some decent ideas and then just turn them up to 11. He believed that if nature broke you, nature could fix you. And the idea of rest didn't mean naps. He meant avoiding anything that might stimulate you, like reading, talking to other people, doing other anything other than sitting in quiet contemplation in an empty room. And then there is Horace Fletcher, also known as the Chewing Guy. He believed in basically an almost liquid diet, which is not great for your guts. You need fiber. He firmly believed that you could tell your own health by minutely examining your poop closely all the time. He also thought protein was bad for you. His approach only had three steps. The first is good advice. Eat only when you have a good appetite. Second, chew your food like pulp and drink that pulp. Do not swallow your food. Drink all the liquids and liquid food sip by sip. Do not drink in gulps. These guys are fun. Can you tell? Then we have our good friend, John Harvey Kellogg. He was the super chewer. He was into super chewing. Um, He ran a famous health sanitarium. You've probably heard of it with extensive baths that again could go on for days, um, enemas, healthy, bland food, and he had really extreme views, including genetics and genital mutilation without anesthesia to stop masturbation. This was the, the second phase of all the diet fads, the clean living movement, and he believed health was a biblical necessity. They totally tied your morality to your health. Now, Kellogg was a married man, but was proud to say that he had never consummated his marriage. Um, He believed in mandatory, involuntary sterilization of anyone who did not meet his definition of proper health. And his views directly inspired Adolf Hitler. Yeah. Now, Kellogg was more of a competitor than a friend of Linda Hazard. And if you wonder, yes, fasting cures are still popular today. There are websites that tell they, quote, minimize toxins in the body. Another one said that, quote, many diseases are cured by permitting the cells to dissipate the chemicals, medicines, and unwanted hormones they are bloated with. That is not how cells work, sir. Another website recommends that for a maximum fasting benefit, Obese people should have liposuction first. And these sites are, of course, promoting long-term fasting a month at a minimum. And, of course, they can help you do this because they offer books and such. Now, the Mayo Clinic says that there is some evidence that intermittent fasting can be beneficial for certain conditions and for weight loss. But they agree that more study is needed to determine exactly how much fasting helps and determine benefits versus the risks. And they recommend you talk to your doctor about whether or not intermittent fasting could be right for you. So all this quackery seems pretty much bonkers, but there was still a lot we didn't know about the world. Science was very much trial and error, and we were actively exploring the planet. This is the time known as the heroic age of Antarctic exploration, which really goes from turn of the century until the end of World War I. Norwegian Roald Amundsen's exploration party became the first known group to reach the South Pole, arriving December 14, 1911. He later attempted to reach the North Pole, but after suffering a broken arm and being attacked by polar bears, he was forced to abandon that endeavor. Brit explorer and naval officer Robert Falcon Scott arrived at the South Pole just six weeks after Admanson to find a tent and a journal for Admanson waiting for him. His party began the return, but never arrived. Their bodies were located in late 1912, and Scott is believed to have perished last, around March 29th, 
of that year. Who was Linda Burfield Hazard? Linda was born in Carver County, Minnesota in 1867. She did the expected thing and married at 18 and had two children, a boy and a girl. But Linda wanted a career. No shame there. So she just left them. Don't love that. She and her daughter would remain estranged, and Linda seldom mentioned her. The son, however, would come to live with her later and pretty much sponge off her. He was a wannabe actor and a creep. Interesting factoid about her husband, Linda later divorced him on the grounds that he abandoned her, and then she shipped her kids off to their grandparents to raise them. But the husband sort of vanished. And given her later activities, it does make one wonder. As mentioned, Linda Burfield, as she was then, studied with Edward Dewey and began administering Dewey's fasting cure herself. Her first patient died in 1902, right about the time she divorced her husband and not long after she began practicing. Because why spend a lot of time learning medical nonsense? Am I right? Gertrude Young was 41 and had suffered a stroke that left one side of her body paralyzed. Linda promised her that fasting would help her walk without assistance. Linda held herself out as Dr. Linda Burfield. Within three weeks, Gertrude Young was desperately ill, suffering in the cold because windows had to remain open due to the refreshing winter air never mind her illness. And this was winter air in Minnesota. Those who saw her said Gertrude was sunken in, her skin was turning yellow, and she was wasting away before their eyes. The nurse who attended Gertrude was alarmed, and so she called a doctor, an actual doctor. He responded and was horrified. Together, the doctor, who knew she needed nourishment immediately, and Gertrude's family and friends tried to convince her to eat, but she refused. Her fast was supposed to last 40 days, according to Dr. Burfield, and she wouldn't break it. Gertrude died on the 39th day. Linda listed her cause of death as paralysis, and she made immediate plans to ship the body to a burial spot. The doctor pulled the not-so-fast-my-friend and had the body sent for a post-mortem at University of Minnesota. Doctors there said the woman, who weighed only 105 pounds at the time of her death, had died as a result of starvation and was so dehydrated they could hardly find any blood in her. Dr. Williams, the doctor who had responded, wanted charges pressed against Dr. Barfield, but due to a glitch in the law at the time, Gertrude was deemed to have acted of her own free will. See, if she'd been acting under doctor's care, that doctor could have been held responsible for the bad advice. But since Dr. Burfield wasn't actually a licensed doctor, Linda went free. She brazenly gave an interview where she claimed that Gertrude had been cured by her treatment, but then regressed and under intense questioning by her savior, Linda, admitted that her doctor, Dr. Williams, had told her she had an incurable condition that would soon kill her. Linda also claimed that Gertrude had confessed to not following Linda's orders exactly. So you see, it was all the fault of the doctors who were out to get Linda and the patient who couldn't do things properly. Gertrude's family wanted answers. Specifically, they wanted to know what had happened to Gertrude's jewelry. She had been wearing some very expensive rings at the time of her death. Linda claimed that wasn't true and that she had seen Gertrude hand the rings off to a nurse named Phillips. A nurse who no one else had heard of and who was never located. Soon, Linda met a man. Enter Sam Hazard. Sam Hazard was a West Point graduate who destroyed his military career by stealing money from the Army. Even before Sam met Linda, he had a history of forgery and fraud, leaving behind wives, broken hearts, and empty pocketbooks. 
Unfortunately, he collected wives quicker than he divorced them and found himself on trial for bigamy because Linda was wife number three. While he had two, he was still married to. Linda stood by her man and with him claimed he had never been married to his second wife, just living in sin. Well, the jury disagreed when presented with the stacks of letters Sam had written to wife number two to, quote, my darling wife and signed your loving husband. He had also been going by an alias because he was wanted for his previous forgeries and frauds. He was sentenced to two years, but was, of course, released early for being a model prisoner. Throughout, Sam had reconciled with wife number two just after she received a large inheritance. She paid for everything while Sam was in custody, including better accommodations. But as soon as he was free, he abandoned her and joined back up with Linda because Sam was nothing but a good-looking con artist with an alcohol problem. Once he was freed from jail in 1906, Sam and Linda went to Washington State with the intention to found a sanatorium. They settled first in Seattle, but were soon commuting to Olala, a rural community across the Sound where they dubbed a 40-acre retreat Wilderness Heights. Before long, the locals would dub the place Starvation Heights, due to the skeletonized figures that staggered out of the retreat, barely able to hold themselves up. A loophole in Washington law allowed people who had held themselves out as doctors to continue practicing medicine even after degrees became required, which is how Linda Burfield Hazard, with little training and no degree, was able to get a license to practice medicine in Washington. She held herself out as a fasting specialist and self-published a book on her cure in 1908, which was basically a complete system reset by not eating. Patients consumed small bits, maybe a cup or two a day of weak vegetable broth made from tinned tomatoes, which she claimed were fresh, or from boiling asparagus. It also included daily enemas that lasted for hours and pumped gallons of water into people's bodies, scalding baths and massages, which were really beatings where she slapped and pummeled her patients with fists. She wrote in her self-published book, Fasting for the Cure of Disease, Appetite is craving, hunger is desire. Craving is never satisfied, but desire is relieved when want is supplied. That makes zero sense to me. Linda also insisted that no one ever died from food deprivation. If you died during a fast, it was because something else was wrong with you, some inherent defect of organs. So none of the people who died under her care, and there were many, were ever her fault. Later, Linda's book was republished by Physical Culture Publishing Company, this company was owned by Bernard McFadden. If you want to know more about this guy who was also in, super into starving people, check out one of the most recent episodes of Behind the Bastards podcast about how the first fitness influencer screwed things up for everyone. It's actually a two-parter and it is all about Bernard. Now, as Linda Burfield Hazard's fame spread... So did her notoriety, because more of her patients began dying. First, there was Lenora Wilcox, and then Daisy Hagland, who was the mother of Evar Restaurant's founder, Evar Hagland. It's likely that Daisy would have died of starvation anyway, because she had a very advanced stomach cancer, but she died following a 50-day fast, and her last days were of misery. Nevertheless, her widower wasn't mad. In fact, he took his child to see Linda for some sort of health reasons. Fortunately, little Ivar was fine, but the widower was also a such a supporter that he would testify on Linda's behalf during her murder trial. Next, under Linda's care, died Blanche B. Tyndall, Violet Heaton, and then Eugene Stanley Wakelin. 
Wakelin was the 26-year-old son of a British lord, and he, unlike the others mentioned, did not die of starvation. His decomposing body was found in Wilderness Heights. The cause of death was a gunshot wound to the de- to the head. Hazard would claim that Wakelin was fine and she had been to see him de- daily. However, when he was found, he had been dead for some time. In what would become a pattern for her, Linda had obtained power of attorney over the young man's affairs, and he had made a will leaving everything to her. She wired his family, complaining that she needed more funds to settle his affairs and pay for the mortuary and for all the treatments he had received. Speculation was of two minds. Some said Wakelin had killed himself in despair over the agonizing treatments, or others said he had been murdered while trying to leave, perhaps in a fit of temper after Linda had discovered his family was impoverished and not wealthy at all. And still, the patients came and died. Next was Maud Whitley, and then a civil engineer named Earl Edward Erdman, who died after just three weeks. Authorities didn't pay much attention until a cluster of three deaths in rapid succession. Frank Southard was a prominent attorney. C.A. Harrison was publisher of the Alaska Yukon Magazine. And Yvonne Flux was a Brit who had come to the U.S. to buy a ranch. Although he arrived with money and he owned property, he only had $75 left to his name, by the time Linda was done fasting him to death. The families of all of these men were understandably upset. Loved ones were dead and their property was gone. Then, in 1911, L.E. Rader sought Linda's treatment. Lewis Ellsworth Rader Sr. was an American politician in the state of Washington He served the Washington House of Representatives and published a magazine called Sound Views. Linda put him up in the Outlook Hotel, and people who saw him wasting away were alarmed. The health director of Seattle was contacted, but he said he couldn't intervene because people were willingly entering Linda's treatment. But inspectors did go and try to convince Rader to leave Linda's treatment. He refused, convinced that she was going to cure him of an unspecified stomach ailment. When Linda got wind of the inspectors, she was furious and spirited Raider away to an unknown location where he died. At the time of his death, the nearly six-foot-tall man weighed under 100 pounds. Raider had owned the land where Wilderness Heights was built, and on his death, He left it to Linda, along with a sizable portion of his estate. And the pattern was set. Autopsy reports listed starvation as the cause of death for Linda's patients, unless Linda herself performed the autopsy, in which case anything but starvation would appear as the cause of death. And a local funeral home, Buttersworth, handled all of the corpses for her, frequently cremating or burying them before they were seen by anyone else. And this is when Linda met the Williamson sisters. Claire and Dorothea Williamson were described everywhere as spinsters because they were in their 30s and not yet married. They were the daughters of a military man who had died and left them extremely wealthy, The pair traveled around, visiting friends and family around the world and taking the cures. See, although the two enjoyed relatively robust health, they enjoyed alternative medicine cures, especially those at nice sanatoriums such as Switzerland, where they were sledding and playing outside in the snow. While visiting Victoria, B.C., they found a copy of Linda Burfield Hazard's book, and a pamphlet for her sanatorium. Now, the pair had already given up meat and corsets in an effort to better their health. They pursued fresh air and vigorous exercise. They had been interested in Kellogg's sanatorium, but it was all the way across the country, whereas this one was right nearby. 
and they were excited to try the fasting cure and the idea of a beautiful sanatorium in the American wilderness appealed to them. They envisioned cozy cabins in the woods, horses, swimming. The brochure touted a diet of vegetable broths from fresh foods, so they corresponded with Dr. Hazard. Linda said that she had swollen glands and some rheumatism, and Dora had, quote, a dropped uterus. Linda assured them that she could easily cure both of them with her treatments, so they made plans to stay in Seattle. Linda arranged for their accommodations, and because the Williamson sisters' family members did not approve of their interest in alternative medicines, they lied about where they were going. The treatment was meant to be brief. Both sisters had plans and further trips already scheduled. Claire was going to England to take a teacher's course, and Dora was going to Australia to visit their beloved nurse, Margaret Connolly. The sisters' mother had died when they were very young, and so they were both close to, extremely close to each other and to Margaret, who had raised them and was like a mother to them. Although the sanatorium had been functioning for three years, like she did with many of her higher-class clientele, Linda told the sisters that her sanatorium wasn't ready yet, still under construction, but would be ready soon. In the meantime, they would stay in Seattle. The sisters were disappointed, especially Claire, but they agreed. Let's talk about the sisters' personality. Claire was the more forceful personality. She was bubbly and positive, although a little naive, but, and she was the one who was really the most interested in the cures. Dora was the elder sister, but she doted on Claire. Anything Claire wanted was good with Dora, and Claire was eager to try Dr. Hazard's most beautiful treatment, as she called it. As I said, the sisters were known to be rather naive, having been pampered so much of their lives, and they were never really ill. One relative marked that they were more bored than ill, and they had been scammed more than once because of their naivete. So Linda Hazard moved Claire and Dora from the luxurious Empress Hotel in Victoria, B.C., to an apartment on Seattle's Capitol Hill, and she laid out their course of treatment. According to the book Starvation Heights, she would tell them, quote, your bodies are full of poisons. You need to walk it out. No matter how difficult it may be as the fast continues, you must persevere and walk, 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 end quote. The sisters would daily travel to Dr. Hazard's offices for her treatments until they became frail and had difficulty walking without assistance. Although neither sister had ever fainted before, as their fasting continued, it became a frequent occurrence. At each trip, Linda would gather them on her couch and regale them with tales of patients she had heroically saved. Linda was said to be very vigorous and magnetic, with piercing hypnotic eyes and a brisk, forceful manner. After the ladies became too frail to come to her office, Linda procured a nurse for them. Nellie Sherman was fiercely loyal to Dr. Hazard. Each day, each day, Nellie Sherman procured for the girls a broth made from strained canned tomatoes. One cup of broth twice a day. That was it. Sometimes they were allowed a teaspoon of orange juice in the morning. And each day they were administered vigorous massages from Linda Hazard and enemas. Why anyone without food in their bodies needed enemas? It's a good question, but these weren't ordinary enemas. They involved gallons of water and took hours to administer. The process became excruciatingly painful and the sisters would cry. They began fainting during this and so the bathtub was covered with canvas supports to drape their bodies over. And it is said that Nellie Sherman began finding things floating in the enemas that looked alarmingly like the insides of the Williams sisters. 
Now, as the sisters dwindled, Dr. Hazard would appear every day and quiz them. Who knew where they were? What accounts did they own? What property? What valuables? Did anyone else have access to their accounts? Did they have a man of business? How much were they worth? The sisters were extremely wealthy, but managed all their business themselves. No one oversaw their finances, and no one knew where they were. She advised the sisters further to not discuss business with each other, because it would be upsetting or stressful. Two months later, the sisters could no longer sit or stand without assistance, and the sanatorium was then deemed ready for them. They were transferred via ship. At the time, they weighed about 70 pounds each. They were placed on the docks in stretchers, wrapped with only their faces showing. While there, not speaking, barely conscious, then came Linda's lawyer, John Arthur, rushing up to them with documents for them to sign. He helped Claire place a shaky signature on a document which turned out to be a codicil to her will, leaving a monthly stipend of 25 pounds per year to Linda Hazard's Institute and adding that in case of death, Claire wanted her body cremated under the charge and direction of Linda Burfield Hazard. The sisters were then taken around to a private dock on the island where no one could see the sisters arrived. Their valuables, jewelry, clothing, money, and property deeds all immediately went into Linda's quarters for safekeeping. And she also immediately divided the sisters putting them in different cabins. She told Dora that Claire did not wish to see her until she was healed. And she told Claire that Dora has be had become insane and lost her mind due to early onset menopause. She would tell anyone who would listen that the ladies had been so much sicker than she had believed at first, and she was astonished they had survived long enough to meet her. Then, Margaret Conway, their lady's nurse, received a garbled telegram summoning her to Alala on April 30th, 1911. It's not clear who sent her the cable, but one of the sisters must have bribed someone to get it out because Linda controlled all the mail. No mail was sent out or received without her examining it. She kept the postal box under lock and key. She claimed it was to protect her patients from unpleasant excitement. Now, Margaret was down in Australia, but she hopped on a boat from Sydney and arrived in Vancouver on June the 1st. Samuel Hazard went to pick her up, and just before they arrived back at the sanatorium, he casually mentioned, oh, by the way, Claire's dead, Dorothy is insane. Margaret was stunned. Sam took her directly to Butterworth Mortuary, where she was allowed to view a body allegedly belonging to Claire. I say allegedly because although Margaret recognized the clothing as Claire's, the corpse looked nothing like Claire. Everything was wrong, from the shape of the face, the hands, even the hair color. Then Margaret was whisked away to Wilderness Heights and an even bigger shock when she saw Dora, who was down now to only 50 pounds. Her bones were protruding so sharply she couldn't even sit without pain. At first, Dora exclaimed she begged for Margaret to take her away from there, but quickly reversed course and said she was happy to stay. She was going to be made all well. Dora was living in a cabin, which was nothing more than a shack, about the size of a chicken coop. She had no furnishings. Her clothing had all been taken away, as had her jewelry and all of her possessions, and she was just clad in a rough cotton gown. Unhappy, Margaret went to Linda, who had the audacity to meet with her wearing a silken robe that had belonged to Claire. Linda said that Claire had been at death's door when she arrived and that she told the doc she told Dr. Hazard she had come to be cured or die. Linda explained that Claire's death was the result of drugs administered to her in childhood, which had shrunken her internal organs and caused cirrhosis of the liver. As proof, 
Linda showed Margaret bags with shriveled materials she claimed to be Claire's organs, and she described her organs thus, according to Starvation Heights. Miss Williamson's liver was so hard, I could not get a knife to penetrate it. The blood in one heart's valves was so dry, it powdered in my fingers. Her intestines were so small, so infantile, you could not have passed a lead pencil into them. End quote. Margaret declared her intent to take Dora away with her, and Linda informed her that Dorothea had given Linda power of attorney. They were using Dora's funds, quote, for her care, but they had legal guardianship of Dora because she was not of sound mind. She belonged to them. Also, they were executor of Claire's estate. All of her funds, which they were liberally dipping into, her jewels, her clothing, everything was in their control now, and Claire had wanted them to have it. Margaret began sneaking calories into Dora's tomato broth whenever possible, mostly in the form of a little roux, a little flour, or a little rice powder. Once she tried to sneak in a bit of cream, but Dora's body couldn't handle it and it made her ill. The worst part was watching Dora try to walk each day. She'd move on all fours, stand, fall down to the dirt, lay there gathering strength to try again, climb to her feet, stagger a few steps, fall again, and no one was allowed to help her move. The other patients were all kept apart, just as Dora and Claire had been, but they were all allowed, allowed out of their cabins for the 4th of July. Two different patients came to Margaret begging for help to get away. They said they were all trapped there, just as Dora was, unable to get a message for help out while they wasted away. Even if she had gone to the authorities, Margaret was afraid Linda and Sam were important people in the community, and she was just a servant. One night, she sneaked into Sam's office and found that he was sending bank drafts, allegedly on behalf of Dora, but all the money was going straight to him. He was just draining her accounts. So desperate, Margaret made a plan and was able to sneak out while Linda was gone to Seattle. Margaret sent a cable to John Herbert of Portland, Oregon, one of the sister's uncles. He arrived and was also told that Dora wasn't free to leave. But when it became clear that John Herbert was a man of, of means who was going to raise a big stink and bring in his lawyers... Linda and Sam acquiesced, but only if Dora's bill was paid. Her assets were now allegedly depleted, and she owed them $2,000, a staggering sum, when annual wages were between $200 and $400 a year. A year, annual. It was basically a ransom, and John Herbert knew it. Linda told him that, quote, she was a licensed specialist and entitled to charge whatever I wish for my services. He negotiated the price down and paid and left with Dora. She was a skeleton at that point in precarious health, but away from the tender care of Dr. Linda Hazard, she regained weight. But Margaret and John weren't done. They were still outraged. The Hazards have retained all of the sisters' property and wealth. And Claire was dead. They enlisted the assistance of the British Vice Consul Lucian Agassiz to help. Kitsap County wasn't interested in prosecuting the Hazards. It would be expensive and embarrassing. But Agassiz and Dora refused to take no for an answer. Agassiz and John dug into the history of Wilderness Heights and were appalled at all the deaths and fraud. They brought the pressure of the crown because Claire and Dora had been British subjects. Kitsap County finally agreed after Dora promised to foot the bill once her finances were restored. She also paid for a private prosecutor to come in and handle the case. August 15, 1911, Linda Hazard was arrested for the murder of Claire Williamson. In addition, Samuel Hazard was arrested for forgery when he was found to have written so many checks on the sisters' accounts. Linda loudly proclaimed that the traditional and male medical establishment wanted to discredit her 
because she was a woman and because they opposed any sort of natural cures. In that, she wasn't entirely wrong. Marie Curie was a Polish physicist and chemist. She's best known for her research on radioactivity, research that would claim her life, and she received two Nobel Prizes. The first she received with her husband, Pierre Curie, and a man named Henri Becquerel. Originally, the committee only intended to honor uh, Pierre and Henri, but when Pierre and Henri learned about that, they insisted on Marie being included, making her the first woman to receive a Nobel Prize in 1903. Just three years later, Pierre was killed by a horse-drawn carriage. Marie was heartbroken and dedicated herself to her work. But she was in France, and there were nasty rumors that she might be Jewish. The press treated Marie as an untrustworthy foreigner, an atheist, and a homewrecker. At the same time, they were happy for the accolades that a French Nobel Prize brought they had learned in 1911, just before she received her second Nobel Prize, this one in chemistry, that Marie had been involved in a year-long affair with a fellow physicist, Paul Langevin. Langevin was married, but estranged from his wife. But the media went nuts with the scandal. Marie was in Belgium at a conference and returned to find an angry mob outside her house so that she was forced to flee. In spite of the scandal, she did receive the Nobel Prize for her discovery of radium and polonium. One member of the committee, though, did try to prevent Marie from attending in person to receive her award due to her, quote, questionable morals. Marie clapped back that she would be there because she was getting an award for her scientific work and not her personal life. However, although she put on a brave public face, she was hospitalized later that year with depression and avoided public life. She wouldn't return to her work until December 1912. She remains one of only two people to have received the Nobel Prize in two different fields. And I have a magnet with her face on it in my office. So Linda wasn't wrong that the world was not a friendly place for female scientists. But then again, Linda wasn't much of a scientist. She was a con artist who starved people to death for profit. Now I mentioned her arrest. Most interesting, at least to me, is that Linda Hazard was charged with premeditated murder meaning she intended for Claire Williamson to die. She wasn't charged with accidentally starving her. The prosecution alleged that the murder was deliberate and that the real motive for all the deaths at Wilderness Heights was financial starvation, draining the money from wealthy people after incapacitating and killing them. In short, they deemed her a serial killer not an alternative medical zealot. The trial testimony supports this accusation. Linda's supporters, mostly her employees, came forward to say that Claire and Dora were well-fed, that they received gentle massages, lived in luxurious conditions, uh, were allowed to spend time together, etc. In other words, they completely lied about the women's treatment because they knew what they were doing was wrong. And they all had a financial stake in the outcome. Now, some of Dr. Hazard's patients testified. These were ones who had been treated by Dr. Hazard and were now completely well. She had, had cured them. Of course, most of them hadn't been ill in the first place. Several times, Linda Hazard was caught signaling witnesses in the trial, and the judge had to bounce the jury out of the courtroom and admonish her. There was also testimony from several prosecution witnesses before the judge that they had been offered bribes and threats from Linda's camp to change their testimony or to just not show up for court at all. The defense objected that the indictment, the charging instrument, failed to allege a specific crime, 
but instead merely alleged a range of days and a failure to act, not an actual action. However, the courts ruled and the appellate courts in Washington upheld that Linda Hazard was charged with deliberately withholding food during a range of days and that this was an intentional continuing course of conduct decided to bring about the result of Claire Williamson's death. So the indictment was sufficient. The defense also objected that the crime began in one county, in King County while in Seattle, and then continued into a second county, Kitsap, while in Olala. But the law contemplates that and allows the crime to be prosecuted in either county. So although Claire had died in Kitsap and was being prosecuted there, the state could still allege the actions that had happened in King County as part of the continuing course of conduct. And the prosecution's testimony was damning. The most damning evidence and most controversial was not just all of the medical testimony, but it was Dora's testimony. Dora, over the objection of the defense, was allowed to testify as to the treatment both women received in Seattle because she was present for Claire's treatment there. She was allowed to testify about her own treatment in Olala because the defense claimed it showed a separate offense, not the one alleged in the indictment and was therefore prejudicial. But the court ruled that Dora's treatment was part of an evidence of a continuing plan or course of conduct to achieve the purpose of deliberate starvation for remuneration, easy for you to say, and allowed that testimony. And then there came all of the evidence of fraud. The checks that were written on both women's accounts, including some drafts for Claire after her death, the oddity of their wills being signed, Dora's guardianship paperwork, which hadn't been signed by any of the actual parties, um, the missing jewelry and cash. There were allegations that the funeral home, Butterworth, which Linda had strong financial ties to, had switched Claire's body with that of another woman to make her not look so emaciated at her death before cremating the remains. The jury deliberated for some time. They were given the opportunity to find Linda Hazard guilty of lesser charges, murder in the first degree, murder in the second degree, or manslaughter, and they took the option of manslaughter. There was a lot of speculation that someone was holding out because she was a woman, and so this was a compromise verdict. Uh, Starvation Heights lists that allegedly the vote was initially five for first-degree murder, four for second-degree murder, one for manslaughter, and two who declined to reveal how they had voted at the beginning. So they all compromised. And Linda was found guilty of manslaughter. But our story does not end there, because after the verdict, it was also discovered that Linda had removed Claire's teeth and sold them. The story stayed in the media at first. Linda was allowed out to wait during sentencing, and she kept right on with what she had been doing through the entire trial and now into the sentencing, and two more people died in her care while the court was waiting to sentence her. Mary Bailey had seen the news and all the blitz of pretrial publicity, but she trusted Linda Hazard, and she knew that the media was simply biased against women of science. Mary moved into Wilderness Heights before the start of the trial. She was then found during sentencing in a bundle of coverings beginning to rot and smell. She had starved to death and was covered in burns from heating bricks that had been placed on her to keep her warm in the winter, but she had been too weak to cry out for help as they burned her. She had also been under the care of Linda and a nurse by the name of June Oaks. Ida Anderson was another woman being attended to by June Oaks. June had originally arrived to care for Mr. Anderson, uh, who was suffering from acute food poisoning, and she treated him with fasting, and he recovered shortly after she arrived because it was food poisoning. But Mrs. Anderson, Ida, was pregnant, and so June 
under the direction of Linda, stayed with them to care for her. The baby was tiny and sickly, and June cared for Ida and the newborn by fasting both of them and giving the baby mud baths from a nearby creek. Well, the poor infant died, and the family wanted to dismiss June Oaks, but Ida wouldn't hear of it. So June stayed on, and Ida became pregnant again and delivered a second child. Mr. Anderson finally had enough, and he sent June away, and he took Ida and the baby to an actual hospital where they began to gain weight and thrive. But one night, Ida bundled herself and the child up and ran to a hotel under the care of June Oaks. Soon, Ida was dead, and June immediately had her body sent to Butterworth Mortuary, Linda's place. Under questioning, Linda admitted that she had been treating Mrs. Anderson daily with her osteopathic treatments, but denied that she was supervising the fast. Ida Anderson was autopsied and found to have died of starvation. Thankfully, the infant was taken back to the family, placed in his grandparents' care, and nursed back to full health. Linda continued denying that either woman was her patient. She said Mary Bailey was just a good friend who was staying with her. In spite of the woman's diary filled with info about how she was traveling to this sanatorium to fast and all about her doctor's care and somehow Mrs. Bailey's purse and valuables went missing. There was a coroner's inquest and June Oaks testified that she had handed the items to another person named Gus and Gus testified he had given the items to Linda who began shouting at him in the courtroom that that wasn't true and she called them both liars. Now, authorities were going to charge her with those deaths, but decided it seemed pointless since Linda was already convicted of manslaughter and was going to prison. And at this point, the media had lost interest. To be fair to the media, they were becoming very distracted by a story about some luxury liner going down in the ocean. This is 1912, so yes. The Titanic went down shortly after Linda Hazard was sentenced. And Linda was sentenced to 2 to 20 years, and she served the minimum. Two years in Walla Walla for the torture and murder of Claire. She served no time for the other deaths. Six months later, the governor pardoned Linda. Just really. He never gave a reason, although at that time Linda agreed to leave the U.S., She had been stripped of her medical license, and so she went to New Zealand, where she set up shop and continued to practice as, quote, a physician, dietitian, and osteopath. She wrote books, and she made a lot of money. About five years later, Linda came back to Washington and began practicing medicine again. She claimed she was really just operating a school of health to teach other practitioners, complete with an autopsy room in her basement. But she had patients and she began starving people to death. Again, a man named Leonard Ritter died in her care while she was in Los Angeles. And Linda was fined $100 for practicing medicine without a license. She spent no jail time. In 1935, the well-insured sanitarium burned. Linda seemed distressed, but Sam Hazard reportedly stopped anyone from going in to get any of the furnishings out, telling him, leave them, those are insured. Three years later, and in ill health, Linda took a fast to cure herself, and she died. It's unknown how many people actually died in Linda Hazard's care. We know of a dozen But there were always rumors of other bodies buried on the grounds, people no one knew who were staying at Wilderness Heights, who didn't have a Margaret Conway or John Herbert to rescue them. And that's our story. As always, you can reach me at marguerite at gmail.com. You can find pictures on my Pinterest board 
at Marguerite Says, and also my Facebook page, The Scalawags Podcast. You can tweet me at Marguerite Writes with no E, so it looks like Marguerite Writes because I, I didn't have enough letters. And also my website, thescalawagspodcast.com. Most of all, if you are enjoying this podcast, please hit subscribe and give me a rating, maybe a review. I'm begging a bit here for reviews because that's how I get seen or heard by other people. I'll be back soon with a time capsule, The Ballad of Cowboy Henry. But until next week, get out there and make some history of your own.